Don't you love that feeling of a job well done? Let's take that deep breath in and that deep breath out. There's just something that feels good when you're tying the bow on the end of the project. Whether you were doing something for work, maybe it was school, maybe it was something around your house, and you finished it. And I'm not talking about it's one of those like all-nighters, you know, coming in barely under the wire sort of situation. So I've had way too many of those. Um, but I'm talking about when you finally get to put the final piece on your project and lovingly say, we finished that. We did it. When you take the victory lap. Um, I recently moved from an apartment into a rental house. And so my backyard used to be a six foot by three foot concrete slab. And now there's this like big old thing that has grass in it. And grass needs to be watered and mowed, and it probably needs to be weeded, but it's not. But anyway, so when I moved in, I think it was early this spring, you know, you go through the Oregon winter, and it was the first time that I got to mow my own lawn as a grown-up man. Oh, thank you, thank you, yes, 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 I appreciate that. Not because my mom told me to do it, but because I wanted to do it. And so I sat down on my porch, in a rocking chair. Man, I'm, I'm aging like 50 years in this story. But like, no, I sit down on a rocking chair on my porch and I just felt great. Like I stared at my freshly mowed lawn for 20 solid minutes, just basking in the fact that my world was ordered. Now, there's something about coming to the close of something and especially if it's something big, maybe it's something hard, maybe it's something you've been working for. And as you put that final piece in, there's just something satisfying about it. Maybe you were changed by the experience and you come out of it a, a better person, you know, someone who has grown some. Well, here we are at week seven of our series on the Torah through the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and this is week seven, which has some cool biblical symmetry to it, right? Because the number seven in the Bible shows up. And what I want to do today, this is our victory lap through the Torah. We have been for uh, several weeks going at a pretty good clip. This is a pretty good pace. I don't know um, if you have ever had to speak before on an entire book of the Bible, but this has been kind of intense for our teaching team because, you know, sometimes we show up, we're like, okay, so I've got 10 verses that we're going to dive deep in. This time we're talking like 40 chapters, 50 chapters. That's a lot of homework, guys. Uh, but so what we're going to do is I'm going to try and synthesize some of the ideas that we have hit um, in our study through these first five books of the Bible. And I want us to have something that we can kind of hold on to afterwards. Maybe just some, some of it might be some review. Some of it might be Andrew going full Bible nerd because I'm allowed to do that today. And maybe it's going to be stuff that you know or haven't seen or haven't seen in that light. So I'm really excited. Let's go ahead and open with prayer. Father God, um, we invite you into this space. Your word speaks to us, and this is never a dry or academic exercise, but God, this is us seeking relationship with you. 
Father, I pray that your spirit would speak through me, through your word, and that we would live out uh, what it means to follow you. And it is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been in this series through the first five books of the Bible. Those first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I can see some of you guys have that memorized. You're like mouthing it along with me. That's great. Um, the Hebrew word for what those first five books are called is the word Torah or Torah. That's what it was called when I was growing up. And then Ben decided to pronounce it the Hebrew way. So what I need you to do now, turn to your neighbor and say Torah. Okay, turn to your neighbor, Torah. Online, drop it in the chat. Torah. There you go. Now turn to your other neighbor who you apparently like less and say Torah. Torah. There you go. Sorry. No. Oh, man. We're doing a series on friendship after this, so maybe we can heal the emotional wound that I just caused. But uh, So the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, which I won't make you say, or the books of Moses. Those are all kind of attributed to this one time period in Israel's history with this guy named Moses who's kind of important. And so what that word means is law. And what I want us to think about, though, and what we've already kind of highlighted, is that when it says law, it's not talking about, like, city zoning codes or, like, speed limits and infractions, you know, stuff like that. Like, that's not what we're going to sit and read, right? Can you imagine if I took the Dallas city zoning laws and I was like, here is your study now. This will get you closer to God. No, like, that's... That's not how it works, but rather the idea of Torah, and this is why we didn't call the series The Law. Um, also, that's kind of imposing. Can you imagine me standing up here? We're going to speak on the law. No, but, so, but this teaching of this journey, and you get the stories along with the law in those first five books of the Bible. In fact, you don't actually encounter a single law until almost 70 chapters into the Torah. And, and the stories really make it come to life. Maybe you've experienced this, where you, the place where you work or where you volunteer or something like that, they've got policies and procedures and rules, and there are stories behind them. Because somebody maybe did or did not do something, right? Maybe you are the story behind some of those rules at your place of work. But what God is going to invite us into with the Torah is the stories that support this, this law. In this, we don't just see the do's and the don'ts, the thou shall and the thou shalt, but rather we see the heart of the lawgiver. And the first five books of the Bible are going to introduce us to the heart of God. We're going to see who he is played out in all of these laws. Because the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, they're the same God. That, that actually is something that the church has been wrestling with for like over a thousand years. Because there was this early church uh, teacher, um, we would call that, a, they, he's traditionally dubbed a heretic because we don't like what he taught, but what he said was in the Old Testament there is a one God, and he is mean and nasty and angry. And in the New Testament, you've got the Easter Bunny God, where he's fluffy and he's nice and, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Like, and I think that's something that we still wrestle with to this day. 
Because in our culture, you talk to people and they're like, I don't know if I can get behind the God of the Old Testament. There is some gnarly stuff in there. And I, I think that's not something for us to brush over, but rather that's a tension for us to embrace and to wrestle with and to go, okay, so like I believe God and I believe this is his book. And then you open it up and there's some stuff in here that causes us to wrestle, that makes the Torah sometimes a not very well traversed corner of our Bible where we don't always want to go there. And so what this series, what we're trying to do is give you the tools to continue your journey through the Bible so that you can maybe next time when you're reading in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, any of those, and you encounter something that kind of makes your brain have to think a little bit, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's an invitation for us to wrestle with the tension of the text and to say, okay, God, what are you doing here? And so our hope in this series is to give you some tools where you can go on your own adventure, where you don't need the guide walking with you down the trails, but rather we gave you the map and we said, okay, have fun. Now, uh, when it comes to the idea of the Torah, or, and even the Bible, I really like this definition of what the Bible is. Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project in Portland describes the Bible as Jewish meditation literature. Now, maybe that's something you need to say to your neighbor or jump in the, ju drop in the chat. Okay, Jewish meditation literature. You can do it. I believe in you. I know you can do it. Jewish meditation literature. Doesn't that sound fun? No, but what it means is not that it's like a textbook that you start at the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then you flip all the way back to the end, and you got Revelation, and then my Bible has maps at the end. But you don't just go all the way to the end and say, I did that. Yay, me. No. This is a journey that we're on day in and day out as we wrestle with this text together. And I don't know that we ever get to hang our hat and say, this is exactly what I think that passage is about. I have completely plumbed the depths of what's going on in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If you have, please tell me, because I would like to know. But rather, it's this tension of wrestling with it, processing through it, dealing with it day in and day out. And if we are to be followers of Jesus, then we are to be people of this text. We are invited to where reading the Bible is your hobby. Think about that for a second. If you're going to follow Jesus, reading the Bible becomes one of our hobbies. And hobbies aren't just something that you just, you know, go and do or, you know, do one time, but rather they're things that you practice at, things that you get better at. Cycling is one of my hobbies, and I have all of my gear, I'm going to put quotations around this, but I'm going to say organized in my garage, right? There is a box that I throw all my gear into, so I've got my reflective vest and my helmet, but it takes up space in my garage, and it takes up space in my life. Because I go in and I go after it, and day in and day out, week in, week out, little bit by little bit, I'm getting better at this hobby. And so we are called, if we're going to be Christians, to have the hobby of studying the Bible and digging in and getting better and better 
at it. And so at this church, regardless of whether maybe you grew up in Sunday school and you, you know, sang songs about Father Abraham or, you know, had a picture of Noah's Ark painted on a nursery, which always gets me because that story is like pretty dark, but we're going to put it in the nursery because it's got animals on it. But uh, so maybe you know those stories. Maybe you're just stepping in and faith is becoming very real for you in your adulthood. And at Dallas Church, that's all great. We are all following Jesus together. And so there is no like Bible knowledge entrance exam to be a part of this community. But rather, we are following Jesus together. It's interesting to me that the number one requirement that Israel would have put on their kings. So here's the one checklist. What makes a good king versus a bad king in the kingdom of Israel? Whether or not he's a Bible nerd. That's what the kings were called to be, students of the Bible. They were actually supposed to have written out by hand a copy of the law before they could take over rule because God wants us to be people who are shaped by this text. We're trying to get this book into our hearts so that it comes out our hands and so that it comes out our mouth. In the words that we say, in the things that we do, in the relationships that we have, where we are transformed and we are living this out. This is how the book of Psalms starts. Psalms is the prayer book of the Old Testament. It starts this way in chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And before we, like, zoom past that and just go, okay, scoffers, sinners, wicked, those sound like Bible terms. What they're talking about there is people who don't help their community, people who aren't seeking the betterment of those around them. We might have other words to describe that, but that's how the text is saying that. Verse two, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, maybe you might not describe yourself that way to say, man, what's your delight? Oh, man, it's the law of the Lord. This is the first five books of the Bible. I love Leviticus. That's my delight. No. But what the author is talking about here is he's talking about the whole counsel of God's word. And I'm going to expand that as a 21st century Jesus follower to mean the whole rest of this book. The idea to meditate on it day and night. So there's only one time that you should be thinking about God's word. All the time. I'm so funny. Okay, now, uh, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the person who meditates on God's law, they are a tree. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And don't get caught up on those Bible words, chaff and wicked. Those sound like very Bible-y words, right? But the wicked is the person that rejects what it is that God has to say. They're not building up their community and their life. So we got one picture, which is a tree with roots that go down deep. And that tree is healthy. And then the other picture is chaff. That is dead grass. And if you drive around after our 115 degree day, right, you're going to see a lot more dead grass than there was way back when. But here's the thing I find interesting about this. The promise is not that if you're a tree, if your life is rooted on God, that the bad things will never happen, that the storms will never come. 
but rather that when they do come, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the grass? Or do you want to be a tree? And so I love that poetic picture. This is the role that God's word is supposed to play in our life. Psalm 119, let's jump over to that one. Now, Psalm 119 is over 170 verses long, and it is basically all a poem about how important God's word is. I will not teach all 170 verses. You're welcome. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And so this, this series of Torah has really not been about what we can get into your head, but rather how much of God's story we can get into your heart. That's what this has all been about. Maybe you've heard this phrase used of people before. They are educated beyond their intelligence. Ever heard that before? Maybe you said that about someone. Hopefully you didn't say that about me. Educated beyond their intelligence. But here's what it, when it comes to discipleship, let us not be educated beyond our obedience. Let us not have all of the verses memorized, be able to rattle off all of the Bible facts and the context and all that good stuff, but not have it in our heart where we've wrestled with it, where we're living it day in and day out. Rob Landis, who hosts the small group that I'm a part of, he plays drums and bass and all, ki all kinds of stuff. Man, I could just list all the things Rob does. But uh, in our small group, he has this phrase that he uses over and over again where he says, that's great that you know that much scripture, but which ones are you living right now? And that's the encouragement. Let's live this story. So let's recap. What is the law story that God is inviting us into to live. Are you ready? Grab your seatbelts, buckle up, because here we go. Genesis, okay. In the book of Genesis, we've got the beginning of everything. Chapters 1 through 11, we have the big picture story of humanity. We're going to go from Adam and Eve, first two people, and what they do in the garden, right, where there's a talking snake and fruits get eaten, and they reject God, they do their own thing, they go their own way, and then you fast forward to this nation of Babel or Babylon, where they put their fist in the air and they say, okay, God told us to go across the earth and create nations and cities, but rather we're going to do our thing. We're going to stay right here. And they put their fist in the air and they say, God, we will not follow you. So in those first 11 chapters, we learn about what creation is. We learn about how creation is good. The Hebrew word for that is tov. And I think I'm just kind of enjoying when I see something that's cool. I'm like, hey, that's tov. Like, you're very tov today. Like, that's just been kind of fun. So, you know, very tov. Sometimes they're very good. God created creation to be good. And I was raised in the church, and I got this perspective that the world is a scary, dark, sinful place, and we just have to live, that God has called you to live in. Isn't that so loving of him? And yes, this world is broken. Yes, there are things that we don't like about it. But at its core, God made something beautiful. And yes, things went wrong along the way or they're not perfect. But God made something tov. God made something good. And you as his creation 
are that same way. Maybe there are things we don't like about ourselves, things about our story that we wish weren't true, but God made you tov. God made you in his image. And God doesn't make junk. That's a huge deal. Maybe that's what you're taking away from the story today. But so we got creation, and then humans tend to mess it up. And we see that in our lives. We see that in this story where human sinfulness enters into the world and they make mistakes. So what is God going to do about it? And instead of just you know, throwing the whole project away, well, this planet's broken, I better move on. Like, he doesn't do that, but he goes on the rescue mission that's going to take up the whole rest of the Bible. So we zoom in to this guy named Abraham. And Abraham is the beginning of the nation of Israel and what this family that God basically just kind of puts all the chips down, I'm betting on this family to bring about my rescue story in the world. And they are not necessarily the family that I would have put the bet on or all the chips down. Like you read these stories and there's like, like they're making mistakes, they're doing things that you're like, that's in the Bible? But that's also to kind of show that God, he makes the bet on us to invite us to be his people, bringing about his work in our world. So he comes to this guy named Abraham, and there's this big, huge theme that's going to carry all the way through the whole Bible. It's the theme of covenant. Turn to your neighbor, say covenant. Covenant. There you go. A covenant is like a promise, but to like a bazillion degrees, like way more important. A covenant has to do with your life. A contract just has to do with, you know, some property, like houses or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But you got covenant has to do with your life. And the way they would make a covenant in Abraham's day is you'd have a king and a normal person, right? Peasant folk. Um, and they would enter into this covenant and they would take the animal, cut the animal in half. I know it's gross, okay? But they cut the animal in half. They put both sides of the animal on a pathway and the normal person would walk through the center of this animal, basically saying, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be broken, cut off, killed. Like, I'm promising that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Now, in the relationship between God and Abraham, which one of them is the king and which one's the normal person? Like, Abraham's the normal person, right? But God is the one who walks through the center. God is the one who says, if this thing goes south, if this isn't held up, I'm the one who's going to be broken. I'm the one who's going to suffer. And maybe that has some implications for later. Let's keep going. Okay, so then you also have Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and he eventually gets the name Israel because he wrestles with God. Do not be confused. Walking with God is not one of those like nice paths where nothing ever goes wrong and there's unicorns and daisies along the way. Rather, I don't know why those two things go together in my mind. I don't, but anyway, so, so, but rather it's a wrestling match sometimes where our heart doesn't want to submit. Over and over again, God says, you know, I want you to do it this way. I want you to be this type of person. And my heart says, but I want to. But I want to do it this way. I want my way. And this wrestling match back and forth, that's the identity of Israel. Can you imagine every time you read the, the stories of Israel in the book of the Bible, you said the people that wrestle with God? Does that add some color and some explanation to what they do? 
Yeah, it's this back and forth, but God chooses to continue to work with humanity. Now, before we leave Genesis, I've got one more very nerdy Andrew tangent to walk down. So if you want to know this, you know, feel free to stay with me. If not, um, you're in it anyways. Okay, here we go. So when you read Genesis, there are these really weird side stories. There's this one where Noah curses his grandson named Canaan. They did not teach me that in Sunday school. These are the ones we skip when we're doing Sunday school. You've got Babel and Babylon, which is a city where they say they don't need God. You've got this person named Moab who is born under some really crazy circumstances. And then you've got Jacob's brother. So like we talk about Jacob, but his brother is this like red-haired, very hairy man who trades in the covenant for a bowl of soup. That's a weird story. Any way you slice it, right? That's weird. But what you find in the weird stories of Genesis that aren't about the main characters, you're meeting the cast of characters that will take up the whole rest of the Old Testament. Because if you open in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, all that stuff, you're going to encounter these nations of Moab and of Canaan. And what you're getting to see is in these people you're introduced to how those nations are going to behave later on in the story. Okay, that's the end of the Bible nerd tangent. We are now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. In Exodus, we've got two sections, right? Israel is delivered from Egypt, and we've got a showdown between Pharaoh, which represents the power structure of that day, and, and Moses, which uh, is kind of, he's you know that, that scraggly outlaw kind of guy? So in the last service I did it, so I'm going to do it in this one, but it's like, wah, 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 wah. you know, as he's like showing down with Pharaoh. And, and God loves this like scraggly group of renegade upstarts that he's not going to give up on. And he says, instead of Egypt, I'm betting on these guys. This is how I'm going to accomplish my kingdom in there. Bible teacher Marty Solomon calls this the showdown of the two kingdoms, one of empire and one of shalom, one of peace. And then we get to chapter 16, and we're going to talk about the covenant at Mount Sinai. We've got the golden calf, and then they build a really special tent. You can all now applaud because they built the tabernacle. Yay, good job. Yeah, the very special tent that God is going to dwell in, and that gets us to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the instruction manual for the tabernacle. This is how you're supposed to live it. And one thing that we talked about was that the center, so the reason I've got an X up there, is because the center chapter is the most important one. And this is called a, a chiastic structure of the way that some of the Bible gets written, where the center is the most important part. And in Leviticus, God's people are encouraged to be a kingdom of priests where they point everyone towards God. And then there's this line that becomes kind of important to Christianity and following Jesus about how you love your neighbor as yourself. So if we throw out Leviticus, we're also throwing out that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So that's kind of important. Let's go to Numbers. In the story of Numbers... This is where we learned that every number matters to God, and I'm not going to read the genealogy to you. You're welcome. We are instead going to talk about the story of when they finally get to the promised land. So like from Egypt through the Red Sea, 
They finally get to the promised land, and Israel chickens out. Like, that's the climax? That's what we're going to do? But what they say, they send in these spies into the land to go see what's going on, and 12 of them go, 12 of them come back, and 10 say this is a bad idea. We should not go do this. Two of them say, no, our God has been with us this whole time. And the nation of Israel decides, God was with us yesterday, but we're not going to trust him with tomorrow. We're happy to have him showed up, save us from Egypt, but I, this is as far as I go. I'm not willing to risk it. I'm not willing to trust the story of what God is doing. And I'm so glad we never do that, right? Our heart never does that. Where we look back at our story and say, man, God, you got me through this and this and this and this, but, but I'm looking at this, and I'm kind of scared about where this is going. And this is an invitation to wrestle with where is our heart like them, and what they end up having to do is wander for 40 years in the wilderness, where they have to wander, and it's not that generation that goes in to the promised land. So 40 years later, Moses gives the goodbye speech in Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is one big speech, and in that, one of the most famous passages of the whole Bible is what's called the Shema, which it starts out with the Hebrew word, to hear, O Israel, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Hebrew word for might there is your muchness. All that you have to offer. And it's interesting because how much might or muchness does God have? Like how much has he proved up to this point? But there's this thing in his heart, in his mind, in the way that he works, where he wants to partner with humans to accomplish this. And so he asks us to bring all of ourselves, all of our hearts to follow him. And Moses says, okay, Israel, you're going into the promised land. You have a choice. You've got the way of life and of trusting God's story, of leaning into shalom. You've got the story of empire, the way of death, the way of struggling over power structures. And that's the end of the story, at least for the Torah. So maybe you need to start, you know, Joshua chapter 1 and figure out how that's going to go. When I was in middle school, we did a whole year study through Exodus to Deuteronomy. And when they finished, they were like, okay, so what book are we going to study next? And I was like, I need to know what happens to these Israelites. <laughs> so maybe that's what you're going to do. But as we read through, here's some tools that I want us to talk about. When it comes to reading the Bible, genre is one of the most important things we can get our head around. You watch different types of movies, right? You have seen a romantic comedy, you've seen a Western, you've seen an action movie. And in romantic comedies, there are less explosions than in the action movies. Did you know this? Is this like brand new to anybody? But no. But we expect it based on the genre. The Bible does the same thing. In narrative, we get to see the stories of these people, and they're not always what I would call the Sunday school versions of them. And maybe you were taught this in Sunday school. You're like, oh, look, Abraham was such a good guy. He followed and believed God. Have you read the story? He's not a good guy the whole way through. He has some good moments. And so when we read narrative, it's not just hero stories of be like this person. 
But it's the story of God not giving up on them no matter what happens. When it comes to poetry, like I just read Psalm chapter 1, okay? And those are not necessarily 100% of the time promises where if you do this, this will happen. If you read your Bible in the morning, nothing bad will happen to you the rest of the day. That is not true. That is not true at all. But rather, it's that picture of the tree versus the grass. And like that's what we're supposed to lean into. And then you also have the genre of the law code. And there's some, there's some crazy stuff in the Torah, right? I got Leviticus, which has all the skin disease and gross stuff in it. And uh, in that story, like maybe we're reading about some of that, but we need to understand the idea of the historical context and like learn to look beyond it. Like what does this teach us about the heart of who God is? Why is it in there? And if you don't know the answer on the first reading, good. You get to read it again. You get to think about it. You get to ask somebody. You get to process this through because it's Jewish meditation literature. Remember that? Okay, so, uh, so understanding the context and also the idea of covenants. So there is one God over both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He has one heart. He doesn't change his attitude. He doesn't go through an emo phase and get really cool, you know, later in life. No, it's the same God. And so let's see his heart in the Old Testament. But there are two different covenants where the way that we interact with God after Jesus is different because we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a sacrificial system. We have a savior. And we go to Jesus with our sin and our brokenness and he makes that, uh, makes that better. He makes us one with God. So let's talk about some of the themes real quick. We've encountered a lot of them. Number one, God and humanity are working together. They're working in covenant partnership where God doesn't throw the whole thing away and say, okay, I'm done with humanity, but he also doesn't just snap his fingers after Eden and say, boom, everything is fixed. But he's working with people. And so maybe in your life, you're looking out on the story of your life or where you're at right now, and you're going, man, I would not have put COVID-19 as a chapter in that story, like if I could have written this. Maybe what you're up against right now, you're like, God, I don't know why you have me right here. But he does. And he's working in our stories. He's working with people. Also, the idea of a kingdom of priests. Later, uh, the church is going to be described as this kingdom of priests that we are supposed to point everybody back to God. And the idea of the two kingdoms, the power structures of empire and strength and our own human might versus peace and trusting God. And when we studied the Old Testament, we titled this series, we said it's the law that leads to Jesus. So here's where I want to land the plane. Because this law culminates in our Savior that we follow, in Jesus. And when you have studied the Old Testament, hopefully you're going to start to see some really cool connections as you also read the New Testament. If someone wants to read the Bible, actually, this is the way I'd recommend it, is you start with Matthew. If you're going to read for the first time, you read the New Testament all the way through, you read the Old Testament all the way through, and then you go back 
to the New Testament because there's just all of these little lines that get thrown out that start to make sense. And instead of just saying, oh, that's a Bible word, like Jesus has to be called the Lamb of God because it's in the Bible and that's how they talk. No, like there's a reason, there's a picture, there's an image that's going on there. And all the way back in Deuteronomy in chapter 18, what happens is Moses says, that God is going to raise up a new prophet like him. There's this really long section. I'm not going to read all of it. But basically, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. So let's real quick go through some of the ways that Jesus is the new Moses. In the book of Matthew, in the Christmas story, after the wise men and the shepherds and all that, you know, fluffy stuff that we talk about at Christmas, what happens? They have to go on a road trip because Herod, the king, is trying to kill baby Jesus because he sees him as a threat to his power. They have to flee and leave. Now, what do Moses' parents have to do for him? They have to scoop him up, rescue him, flee with him, take him away from Pharaoh as the power-hungry king. And this one maybe doesn't make sense to us as Americans, but this is how the, the Jewish perspective would see it. Israel had to walk through the Red Sea when God rescues them. You've seen that in the DreamWorks version, the Charlton Heston version, where they're walking through the Red Sea. Well, Jesus goes through the Jordan River to start his ministry. He's baptized in that process. Israel, after that, will wander in the desert for 40 years, and they are tempted whether they will follow God or not. What does Jesus do? He goes in the wilderness for 40 days, and he is wrestling with temptation. Is he going to give in to the power structure of empire? Is he going to trust the story and hold on to what it is that God has for him? And fun fact, he's going to quote Deuteronomy as he does that. That's your little Torah moment. Okay, you also have a moment where Moses stands on a mountain and he tells Israel the new way to live. He gives them the sermon, right, from a mountain. Do you see where I'm going with this, right? Jesus stands up and he gives a sermon on a mountain to explain the way to live. Jesus is the culmination over and over and over again of the story of God. And here at Dallas Church, we follow Jesus. Like, that's, that's the ball game. That's ground zero right here. It is all about the fact that we believe that God is active in our lives and that there is a Savior who, no matter how much brokenness we're going to carry in our life, we can come to him with it, and he can make peace with us and God that results in peace with us and our neighbors. And how do you say no to that? Like, I think that's what a lot of us are fighting for in our lives. And that's the story that God invites us into. So, big picture, one sentence, let's sum it all up. The story of the Torah is the story of God working with humans. So, let's live that story. Tomorrow morning, when we get out of bed, we put one foot in front of the other, let's be people of this book. Let's live that story. Let's get this story into our hearts so that it comes out our hands. Here's some real practical ways to do that. Number one, you got to dig in to the story. You got to understand it. You got to expose yourself to it. We want to be that tree, right? With roots planted deep. 
So let's dig into that. Here's just some practical ways. If you don't have a habit of reading the Bible every day, or maybe you're looking for kind of a new way to do it, we're just going to go super nuts and bolts. The YouVersion Bible app is a great place to start because do you know what I have on my person every single day is my phone. And so I have decided that I pair my coffee time in the morning with my Jesus time because you don't want to interact with me if I haven't had my coffee time and you don't want to interact with me if I haven't had my Jesus time. So we're just going to put those together. And so maybe the YouVersion Bible app, that's a good place to start. Another digital resource would be the Bible Project. Um, they're an animation studio in Portland. So like people who love Jesus in Portland, like, we got to rep that. Like That's awesome. And they put out really good resources. Their Read Scripture app is maybe a great place to start reading from Genesis all the way through. Or maybe you need a really good study Bible. If you don't have one, that could be a really good next step for you to take. One of my friends, when they were starting to study the Bible, they weren't really raised in church or didn't know all of the stories. And when they came to Bible study, they opened up to, you know, the book of Deuteronomy or whatever. And the Bible study leader says, okay, so now as we know that Moses wrote this book, and the person's going, my Bible doesn't say that. Like, how do you know? Like, you flip to another book of the Bible. Oh, well, this guy wrote it. Well, how do you know? Study Bibles. That's how you know. Okay. Uh, how to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is another really good book to understand the different genres of scripture. So, like, these are your tools, and I'm just excited for the adventure you're going to get to go on as you explore what it is that God has for you. And then the other thing is we dig in the story, we process it together. Do not read alone. Maybe you need to have coffee with someone, and you don't even have to be reading the same book of the Bible. You can just share with them, okay, so this is what I read, this is what I thought was interesting. You don't have to have a structured discussion or download, you know, the small group guide, which are all on the Church Center app. But, uh, like, you don't have to do it that way. You can just have the relational time to talk with someone. Or maybe you need to do that with your spouse and get on the same Bible reading plan. Now, here's pro tip, just real practical from the Bullock household. Get on the same plan. Don't feel like you have to stay on the same day. Because sometimes one of us reads ahead, the other's like behind. But just, you know, have, give that grace, have that flex time, because the conversations are what matters, not, and I know some of you, you know, detail, goal-oriented people, they're like, I just need to check it all off. Like, no, it's the conversations that's all about. Maybe you need to jump into a life group. In the fall, we're going to launch our small groups again, maybe you need to lead one of those. And you're like, man, I'm interested in this passage of scripture, or I don't know exactly how I would lead it or how I would host it, but we are going to, as a church, follow Jesus together. And after we've processed it together, you got to live the story. It's got to change the way that we treat our coworkers and our neighbors, our children, our spouses, everybody that we run into. So let's live God's story. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you go after us, that you partner with us, that you're, you're wanting to do something in our world through us. God, I pray that we would take the invitation to strive for you, to seek you with our hearts, to put your word in there, and to love you and live for you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.